Right, uh, I'm excited for this evening to get stuck into this message because it's not often we get to just preach what's on our heart, although a series that we have prayed about is what's on our heart, but um, it's a blessing sometimes as someone who gets to preach God's word to be like, this is what you get to preach on this week. Uh, it's whatever you want. And so um, we're, we're in between series at the moment. So we finished a series last week called One John. Well, not called One John. It was in One John. It w- and our, our tagline was, this is how you know. And we're going to be moving into a series called A New Way to Live next week. And we're going to be doing that for 19 weeks. Um, and we're going to be unpacking the book of Matthew or specifically and particularly uh, the Sermon on the Mount. So we're going to be doing that. We're excited for that. Tonight, though, and we're going to be unpacking a psalm together. And uh, as you know, there are many psalms in the hundreds, and uh, well, hundred and something, hundred and sixty something. And uh, so it's, it's a little bit difficult to pick one specific psalm. But as I spend time with the Lord, um, one of my favorite psalms came to mind, and that's Psalm 130. Right? Um, some, some background to Psalm 130. It's, it's part of a group of psalms, starting at Psalm 120, going all the way through to 134. And those psalms are grouped together, and they're called the Psalms of Ascent, or Psalms of Ascents. And essentially, um, they were pieced together and flown nicely together, and were used by the Jewish people um, to tell a story and to take them on a journey spiritually as they themselves went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem um, for their festivals, particularly the Festival of Atonement or Yom Kippur, right, where they would go once a year to have their sins forgiven. The high priest would enter into the holy place. And, and while they were on their pilgrimage, they would sing these songs or these psalms of ascent. And typically it would take them on a journey reminding them of the depth of brokenness that they were in, their need for God, God's ability to save them and God's desire to save them and His saving them through promising a Messiah. So that's what they would do. And they would typically sing the last song while they were ascending the hill to the temple. You remember, or you'll know, or if you don't know, you'll know now that the temple was built on a hill. And uh, they would walk up and they would ascend the hill and they would go to temple. And these songs would essentially have prepared their hearts for worship. And, And Psalm 130 is part of that. But it's also a unique psalm because in and of itself, Psalm 130 does what all the psalms of ascent do together. It, 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 it takes a person from verse 1 through to verse 8 through the journey that all of those psalms do together. And so it's quite unique and stands on its own amongst the psalms of ascent. You'll see just now, but it's a psalm that starts really in the depths of agony pain and despair and slowly builds its way up to the great heights of joy and love and forgiveness and peace in God and his mercy. The fundamental message of Psalm 130 is this, no matter how deep you are in guilt, shame, despair and brokenness, no matter how you got there, no matter how deep you are, you can always cry out to God for forgiveness, knowing that he is faithful to respond to a heart that is for him. That's the fundamental message of Psalm 130. And I really feel in my heart that there are people in here tonight who need to know the grace and the mercy and the love of God. And as we read this, I pray that God will wash you with his word, that you'd be encouraged, and that you'd respond to God tonight in the way that he leads you to. So let's read together. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, 
Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. You may not have picked up on this, but the psalm is structured quite nicely. It's broken up into four stanzas, essentially, and each stanza has two verses, and each stanza has a main point. And so as we read Psalm 130, and as you unpack it, there are four main points that develop here, and we're going to unpack those tonight. The first one is this. Out of the depths and of guilt and despair, you can cry out to God for mercy. The psalmist writes, he says, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. It's obvious from verse 1 that the psalmist is not writing from a good place. He is in a deep place, a place that is painful, a place that is agonizing, a, pain, a place that is torturous for him. He's in duress. He's under distress. And the word depths here mean or portray, or they're supposed to conjure up images of ocean depths. It's a water image. It speaks about the very bottom of the ocean. I don't know if any of you have done scuba diving. I have. I've got my open water, my advanced open water license, and the deepest I've ever been is 38 meters, and I thought that was deep, right? I was terrified on my way down. When I got there, it was fine, uh, but at one stage, I was halfway down the, the line that the dive master had put down for us, so he went down first. Praise the Lord. All right, and, and there was a part where I got halfway, and I looked up, and it was green. I couldn't see anything. I looked down, it was green, and then that music started playing, and you know, in my head. But I got to the bottom and opened up. It was great. And I found out that it wasn't actually that deep. The deepest part of the ocean is the Mariana Trench. It's 11 kilometers deep, just off the French coast. It's, it's deeper than Mount Everest is high. In feet, it's 36,000 feet. That's the cruising altitude of an airline that's flying overseas, right, roughly. At that pressure, it's, at that depth, the pressure down there is 1,000 times more than at the surface. That's how deep it is. And this word, um, out of the depths, is supposed to conjure up that message or that imagery. It's not just a pretty depth. It's not a nice coral reef type deep. It is so deep that there is no light there. It is dark. It is lonely. It is scary. It is crushing. And so when the psalmist says, I write to you out of the depths, out of the depths I cry to you, this is the place that he's crying to God from. We're living in a world today that's riddled and filled with sin, and it's not getting any better. The consequences of foolishness are all around us. The ingredients of self-destruction we can see all too well. Our culture, our society, our country, our neighbors, our friends, our families, those who don't know Jesus, and even those who do are making silly decisions every day. There are things that are out of our control. Perhaps it's disease, sickness, financial strain, joblessness, and so on. Whatever it is, we know too well that you don't have to have been alive for very long to know that there's a difference between just praying and actually crying out to God. Because in the depths, when we find ourselves at a place where there's absolutely no hope, when we're at the absolute bottom, you don't just pray, you cry. 
you cry out to God. In this case, for the psalmist, it wasn't just external circumstances or the difficulties around him that he saw. It wasn't someone else's sin. It wasn't the brokenness that surrounded him. It wasn't the suffering that surrounded him or the death, the disease he may have seen. For him, what took him to the depths was his own sin and the sin that he saw in his heart. Even though he was a godly man, I mean, we assume he was a godly man. He wrote the psalm. He penned it. It's a beautiful psalm. speaks about the redemption of God. We know he was a godly man. But somehow he had got to this point in his life where he had made some decisions, which for him had taken him down into the depths, to the bottom of the Marianas Trench, spiritually, emotionally, and mentally. And he knew it. This is why he's crying out to God. But because he cries out to God, we also know that he knew something that a lot of people who are in the depths forget. The psalmist knew that there's no pit or hole or depths so deep that God's love isn't deeper still. And so he cries out to God. You see, it doesn't really matter. And I don't know how often God had to remind me of this as I journeyed with him. And he, he still has to remind me of this. I don't know how many times he has reminded me. It doesn't matter where you pray or when you pray. But often, prayers and cries to God are never more genuine than when you're in the depths. They're never more real or acceptable than when they rise out of the worst possible places in your life. Have you ever heard that saying, um, nothing begets prayer faster than big trouble? Right, or nothing improves your prayer life faster than big trouble. We say that sometimes to, as like an indictment on people who pray in troubled times. But sometimes it's the best thing to have happen to somebody is for them to descend to the depths because maybe for the first time they start to pray genuinely. A friend of mine, I, I, I went um, back home to East London to go visit some family these past holidays. And a friend of mine was telling me a story about a hunting trip he went on. And they took the, he took his family with him. And they stayed on this really cool game lodge. In the game lodge, there was this dam. It was right in the middle. There were some lodges built around it. And their kids were playing. And all of a sudden, his son went missing. They couldn't find him. Now, he's not saved. And he said to me, Roland, you have no idea how much I prayed. He was like, I don't go to church, but I was screaming out loud, God save my son. He didn't know where he was. He didn't know son But everyone thought this, his little boy had fallen into the pond, went to the dam. They were looking everywhere. He said everyone on that farm, Christian or not, was on their knees praying. And then they would get up and walk around and pray some more and walk around and pray some more. And he said it was absolutely chilling. But he said he found himself in this place that he'd never been in before. And it felt like rock bottom. And he called out to God. Half an hour, 45 minutes later, his son came out and was like, I am the king of hide and go seek. Right? He had been, he'd been hiding in a bush underneath a windowsill. And thought it was the biggest game ever. But here's the thing. My friend said to me, even though I've struggled with my faith and have walked away from the Lord, something about that moment reignited something for him about God's faithfulness and his ability to be able to draw close to God. And it highlighted for him the brokenness in his heart and how actually the distance between him and God wasn't God's fault but his. Psalm 157, 151 verse 17 says, A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. Many Christians pray. A lot of us, well, I hope we pray. 
but very few have learned to cry out to God out of the depths. Those who have learned to cry out, who know what it is to cry out to God, will attribute their ability to be able to do that to the depths that they've been in in their lives. The second thing we learn is this. So point one, you can cry out to God from the depths, and you should. Point number two is God's forgiveness leads to fear. Verse three and verse four, the psalmist says this, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. When I read this, and I read the statement in verse three, some interesting questions came to mind. One question someone might ask is, does God actually keep a record of sins? Because this would suggest he doesn't. Is God ignorant to my sin and my sinfulness? Does he just turn a blind eye? And of course, the frightening answer is this. God does keep a record of sin. God is not ignorant to the stuff that's going on in your life. He is most certainly aware of every single thing you've done and are doing and will do that is sinful. Revelation 20, 12 to 13 says this. I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. See, the truth of the matter is none of us can stand before God because of our sinfulness. Every single thing we do is recorded and has been recorded and will be used against us in the presence of God. When it comes to sin, we are truly out of our depth. There is nothing we can do. You are not going to be able to stand before God in judgment one day and sneak past Him because there's going to be a lot of people there and, and, and enter into the gates of heaven. God knows everything. Young people, God knows the disrespectful look you give to your parents when they turn their back and they've said something you don't agree with. He knows the mutterings and the mumblings you've said under your breath. <laughs> Married people, single people, people who are dating, engaged, God knows the bitterness that's in your heart, the jealousy that's in your heart the lustful thoughts that have been there, the hate you've got or have had towards people, the dishonesty in your relationship, the bitterness towards your spouse or your partner. Employer, employee, God, God knows the way that you're treating the people that work for you or that you work for. God knows when there's theft in the workplace, you've stolen time, you've stolen money, you've stolen company resources, where you've abused your employees. God knows about the gossip and the slander, even if it's just in your head. He knows. God knows all of it. He knows our sin. And if God were to hold you and me accountable for that sin, we'd be doomed. I'd be doomed. You'd be doomed. It would be over. And that's the point that the psalmist is getting at. If God actually held it against us, we would be finished. However, there's this really cool verse. Verse 4, and starts with, but. But God. It's one of the great contrasts of Scripture that we see all the time. And whenever you see that word, I think we did a series called But God. Whenever you see that word, and it relates 
to us and God, especially when we were being spoken about first and then God, you pay attention because something awesome is about to happen. It says this, but with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. Verse 4 takes verse 3 and flips it completely upside down. You see, we're supposed to be terrified that God keeps a record of sin. But we're all supposed to be a people who celebrate and who are joyful because there's this verse, verse 4, that says, but with God there's forgiveness. God is not an arbitrary, random God who's angry all the time and has not made a way for his anger to be appeased. He's a God who is merciful, good, gracious, and loving, who has made a way in Jesus for people to be set free. Without this forgiveness, we are dead. And this is what the psalmist realizes. He's going, God, I'm finished. If you held my sin against me, if you held the sin against me in my life, even if it was just one day's worth of sin, an hour's worth of sin, I would be dead. But God, with you, there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. Because of God's forgiveness, we learn to live properly and we learn to fear Him properly. And initially when you read that, at least for me, it was confusing. It seems a little bit weird that with God there's forgiveness. You would perhaps expect to read that with God there's forgiveness, therefore I'm joyful. Or God with you there's forgiveness, therefore um, I am grateful. Or God with you there's forgiveness, therefore you are loved. But the psalmist writes, with God there's forgiveness, therefore you are feared. And I got to wondering about what that meant until I read something that Charles Spurgeon said in light of this in response to the question that someone asked him about this verse like why does why why is God feared because there's forgiveness with him and he said this when you stand before God convicted and condemned and God pardons you for that sin you weep for joy you begin to hate evil you begin to revel in your forgiveness and live to the honor of the redeemer by whose blood you've been cleansed in other words when you know that God could have sent you to eternity in hell, but he chose instead to pay the highest price and to forgive you, you take that forgiveness not lightly or flippantly. You know that he is still an all-powerful God. And when you know that there has been stuff in your life that you've carried that is going to sentence you and has sentenced you and would have sent you to hell, and God forgives you, and you feel that forgiveness, there is a power at work there that you've never experienced before and no man could match and no power on earth could match. It is a supernatural power that comes from a supernatural God and only he has that ability and you fear him. The word also more accurately perhaps is translated, you revere him. There's this reverence. Now I think C.S. Lewis spoke about it in Narnia or alluded to it when someone asked, is Aslan dangerous? Well, yeah, of course he's dangerous. He's a lion. But he's also approachable. And our God is a lion. He is fierce and he is ferocious, but he's also merciful and just, gracious and loving, forgiving and kind. And so when we receive our forgiveness from God, we don't take it flippantly. God forgives us, therefore we feared. I don't know how much of this world we live in, especially in Christianity today, see people abusing grace. People thinking that grace is a ticket to do whatever it is that they want to do. And the fear of God is lacking. God says that the fear of God leads to wisdom. And there's a place where we need to know the price that the, that the Savior paid for us. And to be redeemed cost him everything. That's why the psalmist says this. The third point is this. 
The third thing we learn is that experiencing God's forgiveness makes you wait and hope for God himself. Here's what the psalmist says. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. There are three questions that we need to be answered in this section. One, what do we wait for? The second one is, what is the basis for our hope? And the third is, how are we expected to wait? Number one is, we wait for God. We wait for God. See, the psalmist has already received forgiveness in verse 4. We know that. And forgiveness is something we receive by faith. It's not dependent on feelings. It's a fact that we obtain by faith and trust in God. However, sin always strains our relationship with God. And if you've experienced this, you'll know what I'm talking about. You may have loved the Lord and been on fire for God, but there may be a time in your life where you've become lukewarm and you've made some decisions that have plunged you into the depths. And God still loves you. There's still relationship there but it is broken because of our decision to sin instead of to honor God. And there's this distance that we experience. And so when the psalmist writes, I'll wait for the Lord, he's not waiting for the forgiveness which he's received. He's waiting for that sense of intimacy and for the presence of God to be restored in his life. He wants that hope and that reassurance again of the presence of God and to be reminded that he is a child of God. He's waiting on the Lord. Being a Jew... The psalmist was also waiting for Messiah, like we are waiting for the king to come back again. And so he's waiting for God. The funny thing is God's people have always been awaiting people. We've always been waiting for something, not because we don't know forgiveness, not because we don't know the care of God and the love of God, but because the full plan the, ref, the full redemptive process has not yet been completed. And so you'll find that as you come to know Jesus, although you've been forgiven, although there's joy, although there's hope, although there's been redemption, we still live in a broken world. There is still sin in our lives. There is still character issues we wrestle with. The old nature, life is hard. Life is difficult. It's full of great struggles. And so we hope for the Lord. We hope and we wait for Him and Him alone. For His presence and for him to actually come back again. Second question is, what is the basis for our hope? And the psalmist's answer is like this. And in his word, I put my trust. We are a people who wait on God, and our basis for waiting, the foundation for waiting, the, the place that we put our trust is in him and in his word. We don't rely on our own imagination, our own feelings. We trust in God and in his promises. And the exciting thing is, because as Christians we've experienced the forgiveness of God, we know that He is faithful to fulfill His promises. Every promise God has made in His Word to His people will be a promise He keeps and fulfills. And so we place our trust in His Word and the promises that are there for us. We wait for God. We place our trust in Him and in His Word. And we wait expectantly and confidently. The analogy of the watchman waiting for the morning is repeated, and the reason why it's repeated is for emphasis and to get us to stop and to think about what he's saying. We are such an impatient generation. Even the older generation have learned to be impatient. Flick on a light switch, there's light. Switch on the kettle, hot water's there. Turn on the tap, 
this water there, hopefully, right? You've just become so used to things happening like this. But I don't know if you've ever been tasked with the responsibility of being a night watchman, or standing guard and not being allowed to go to sleep. I haven't been forced to stay awake, but I have made some decisions that have caused me to just be awake because I've been drinking too much coffee or like last year I went away into the bush and I've just spent some time, I built a little shack in the bush and I just wanted to spend some time by myself. It was a really cool experience, but here was the thing, I was by myself alone, away from anybody and everything and it, it was in winter in the Eastern Cape and, and the sun set really quickly, half past five, it's pitch dark and, it, and the sun only rises at like 7, 7.30 and one, one night I was terrified I was just by myself. I was just gripped by fear and I had overcome that. And my desire was for the morning. I didn't sleep the whole night. I was pacing up and down. I got out of my little homemade little tent shack thing and I couldn't walk very far because I was like, this is terrifying. So I climbed back inside and I was just waiting for the morning to come. If you've ever experienced that, you'll know what I'm talking about. That was similar to, 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 to what the psalmist is speaking about. But what he's speaking about is he's, is he's watchmen who would wait on the walls of the city or at the temple gates and, and they would be tasked with the responsibility of making sure that they were protected from the enemy or the city was at least and they weren't allowed to go to sleep. They had to stand guard and it would be cold. They'd be longing to go home and he, he, he knew, this watchman knew that morning was coming like it always does but he had to be patient and he couldn't give up. And to fulfill his duty. And so when the psalmist writes about the watchman, that's this imagery that we get. There's this expectancy that we have because morning has never failed to come. God has always been faithful to come to his people. Morning has always been faithful. Sun has always risen. But we need to wait expectantly and with hope like these watchmen did. The night is real. The night is dark. And the night in your life can sometimes feel long. But the morning will come and God's light will shine again. That's what the psalmist is getting at. The sun will rise again. So wait expectantly, church. Don't be flippant. Don't be too in a rush. Wait, because God teaches us something in those moments. For me, when I was terrified and alone in the bush, right? It's difficult to admit that I was, but I was. God taught me how to trust in him. God taught me that the battle was in my heart and in my head more than it was in reality, something to be scared of. God is teaching you something in the waiting time. God is teaching you something in the night. God is teaching you something in the depths. God is teaching you something, but you know that you can wait on him because he's a faithful God. The sun will rise again. This time will come to an end. This too shall pass, and you'll look back at the goodness of God and celebrate. Be a faithful watchman. Having been restored and, and renewed and forgiven and realizing this, having waited upon the Lord, the psalmist doesn't stop writing. He ends a psalm like this. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. This is the fourth point. Experiencing God's forgiveness makes you desire that others would also experience his abundant redemption. This is what the psalmist ends with. He goes, I was in the depths. I waited on the Lord. God forgave me. His presence was renewed. Now I desire for other people to experience this. And he changes it from himself to a plea to his people to put their trust 
and hope in God. I don't know about you, but it's true for my life. Because I've been in the depths, because I've been in the place of despair, because I've been in the place of brokenness, when God came through for me, I was grateful, but that gratefulness didn't just sit with me. There's a place where I desired for other people to know it as well. It's a gift that's just too good to contain. There's something about the love of God and the forgiveness of God that when you get it, you just can't keep it to yourself. And let's see what happens with the psalmist. It just, there's this joy that explodes, and he goes, Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love. God is a God of mercy and love, tenderness. Remember how he spoke to Moses in Exodus. He said, when Moses asked uh, to see his face, God said this to him, the Lord, the Lord God is compassionate and gracious. I'm slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That's the God that we serve. We need to get people to know this Jesus that we serve because of the grace that God's extended to us. We need to be faithful in telling people about him. David writes in the Psalms, Psalm 103, um, he says, just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Our psalmist adds, and with him is abundant redemption. Not just redemption, but abundant redemption. From brokenness and despair to abundant redemption, that's what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what God has commissioned us to go and to preach and to teach to the world. Because they so desperately need Him. The world is in a perpetual state of night and depth and darkness. And there is one hope, one Savior, and His name is Jesus. And I pray that we'd be a people who overflow with that hope and that love for God. Our permanent records have been destroyed. There's a place where God records the sin of people, but then there's also a place where in Christ, God's word says that he chooses to forget that. He does not hold our sin against us. If you're in a place tonight where you don't know Jesus, do you know that your sin, the brokenness in your life, if you recognize it as brokenness in your life, Jesus has made a way for that to be redeemed. God can fix that. God can cleanse that and wash that. Do you know that if you're in this place tonight and you're a Christian and you've done stuff that you're ashamed of, embarrassed of, and terribly, terribly frightened of to have, been, to have exposed or to tell anybody about, do you know that God already knows that and is able to make a way for there to be forgiveness and restoration in your life? Do you know that? Do you know that the lie of can't deal with this, this is too big, is what's going to stop you from experiencing freedom and wholeness and cleansing? I want to suggest it tonight that our God is a good God, that he loves you and that he's calling you to respond to him so that you can be set free. And I'm going to leave that with you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to go into a time of worship. But I pray that you don't sit with this thing and leave it, but that you come up to the front. You bring to the Lord what you need to bring to him. You confess to God what you need to confess to him, and you speak to somebody about stuff in your life that you may be carrying because our God is a gracious and merciful God. If you are in a place and you are crying out to God and God has not yet in your eyes or in your opinion come through, wait on the Lord. Be faithful in waiting and watch like the watchman did. God is faithful. The sun will rise and Jesus will do what he has promised to do. Let's stand together and we can pray and go into time of worship. Father, I just want to thank you that you are a God who is full of grace and truth. Lord, thank you that you're a God who loves people. 
who's made a way for our permanent record to be removed. Lord, thank you that for those that are in you on judgment day, you're going to open up a different book, a book that speaks about all the things we have done for you. And Lord, you're going to give us reward according to what we've done for you and not judge us according to what we haven't done. Thank you that you've made that possible through Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that we can say, but God. Thank you, Lord, that we can say, if you did, if you did hold our sin against us, we'd be dead, but you haven't. You've sent Jesus. Lord, we celebrate that. May we not be flippant about that. May we be a people who with reverence respond to you. May we be people who fear you, Lord. God, I pray for forgiveness. I pray for healing. And I pray for people to respond tonight to you. Are you doing a work, Holy Spirit? Give people a courage and a boldness to be able to speak out about what it is in their lives that's holding them back from experiencing you.